Our podcast series featuring interviews with notable members of the broader PICT community. Today we will be talking about movements of political dissent, particularly the one that is developing in Hong Kong. Such movements can be a sign of high political awareness among a population, but they also imply a serious degree of political injustice and oppression. They often emerge at schools or universities but frequently stand in opposition to the curricula of national education. And while they often gain international support, that support can come from states that are practicing the same kind of oppression at home. In brief, even and perhaps especially the various causes of political dissent have to contend with multiple dangers and dilemmas from both within and without. My name is Evrima Mercedes, and joining me today is Jackie Tai, a philosophy scholar from Hong Kong, who is involved with political activism in the city. Jackie, thank you for being with us today. I'm very glad to speak to you. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, in 1997, Hong Kong ceased being a British colony and became a special administrative region within the People's Republic of China. Since then, the city has developed a remarkable culture of social and political dissent. This has included numerous protest movements against the Chinese government's attempts to limit freedom of thought and expression in the city. It seems that each time the Chinese government tries to implement such a measure, Hong Kong citizens push back with mass demonstrations and other forms of protests until the measure is frozen or postponed. Could you give us a brief history of the social movement in Hong Kong? And do you regard this as an uplifting history achievement and triumph, or as a rather depressing one of continuous rearguard action in a losing battle? Uh, sure. Um, I think you describe Hong Kong in a, a very apt way. Hong Kong is different from different parts of China precisely in her political activism. And um, I think it's important to remind ourselves of three important dates. Let's say the first um, important date for such political activism, it goes back to the 1st of July, 2003. In 2003, um, there was a huge uh, protest uh, against the implementation of um, some kind of um, legislation like uh, today's um, national security law. And there were over 500,000 of Hong Kong citizens uh, in the streets uh, protesting against that legislation in 2003. And why is it on the 1st of July, 2003? Because the 1st of July is the... Um, is the day um, when Hong Kong uh, handed over to China in 1997. So starting from the 1st of July, 1997, Hong Kong's Hong Kong sovereignty has been uh, passed to China. So on that very commemorative day, uh, lots of Hong Kong citizens took themselves to the streets to protest against the move of the Hong Kong government to squeeze the freedom of speech, freedom of publication here in Hong Kong. And the second point goes to a huge movement in 2012. In 2012, the Hong Kong government tried to um, 
implement uh, what she calls national education program. And uh, the national education program, in fact, is a kind of patriotic education, just like what is being implemented in China. Um, in 2012, the Hong Kong government wanted to implement a huge program to all secondary school and even primary schools to promote patriotism among the youngsters. And then the youngsters fought back fiercely. Uh, and in the end, uh, the Hong Kong government uh, uh, abandoned that national uh, education. So the second uh, important date of political activism in Hong Kong, it was 2012. And the third point is 2014. As you might know, um, in 2014, in, uh, especially in September, um, a huge movement called Occupy Central uh, started in September 2014. And um, over uh, more than two months, um, people took themselves to the streets and occupied uh, different places in the city center in Hong Kong. And so uh, Occupy Central, Occupy, the idea of occupation comes from Occupy Wall Street um, in 2012, and Central, Occupy Central. Central refers to the um, uh, uh, central business uh, region in Hong Kong, that is the heart of the uh, business region in Hong Kong. So um, with this history of political activism in mind, um, it's not very surprising to see um, a continuation of uh, uh, political protests against the Hong Kong government uh, uh, since last year, for example, um, 2019. But what is new in 2019 um, um, is the deal of extradition. That means in 2019, the Hong Kong government wanted to pass uh, an extradition bill that allows all Hong Kong citizens to be subject to trial in China. That means if that law um, was uh, enacted, all Hong Kong citizens can be sent to China for trial. Um, so uh, that fundamentally violates uh, the autonomy of Hong Kong and undermines the freedom of speech, freedom of association here in Hong Kong. So um, um, since uh, 2019, I think uh, it's not exaggerating to say that uh, 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 an unprecedented movement started. That is um, what you can see in newspapers in, 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 uh, with international uh, attention. Uh, that's what we call the uh, anti-extradition movement in 2019. And now, uh, with the coronavirus, the movement had some kind of uh, uh, interruption. But still, according to some statistics uh, done by my colleagues here in Hong Kong, in June, um, over 51.3% of respondents supported the continuation of the movement. So you can see there is a landslide support for um, social movements uh, that started last year. And, and from a Western perspective, the social movement in Hong Kong is quite enviable. Uh, in a recent picked uh, Voices interview with sociologist Frank Freddy, we discussed the infantilization of citizens in the West. Uh, 
partly through institutions of higher education. We can see the results of this infantilization everywhere. In the context of the coronavirus, for instance, we are witnessing how almost the entire academic establishment in the West, including students, is rolling over and accepting the zoomification of higher education without protest or rebellion. This kind of compliance or apathy is in stark contrast to Hong Kong, where we even see middle school students leading or participating in protest networks. You must be doing something right over there if political sensitivity and participation in public debate are so high, even among middle schoolers. What is it about Hong Kong education or political culture that enables this activist attitude? Um, it seems to me it's very hard to give short answer to that. Even my colleagues in, for example, Taiwan, they are very surprised to see uh, the huge movement that started last year. So um, in my opinion, uh, it is not the uh, education system or local culture that um, uh, motivates uh, the political activism among the youngsters. Mm -hmm. It's always uh, our feeling of being oppressed, our fear of losing our autonomy in the future that uh, pushes us to fight back, to, um, to take different means to protest uh, against the government. Uh, since la uh, last year, we have been talking quite a lot about our uh, fear of um, losing our uh, freedom of speech, freedom of publication. And in fact, we have quite a lot of evidence to fear about that. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, over the past few years, um, some, um, some people who run bookstores in Hong Kong are being arrested by the secret police coming from China in Hong Kong. So they are Hong Kong citizens and some of them have foreign passports, Swedish citizens, for example, and they were arrested in Hong Kong by the secret police sent from the mainland China. So we have concrete fear of um, losing our autonomy, and everyone knows that it is always the intention of the Chinese Communist Party to control the civil society here in Hong Kong and also uh, even the uh, uh, great enterprises in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. The Chinese Communist Party doesn't want to see uh, Hong Kong as a place of revolt. Mm -hmm. They fear that um, free voices in Hong Kong could influence different parts of China, making Chinese citizens to express their discontent against China. Mm -hmm. But that is the major reason for the Chinese government to uh, tightly control our autonomy. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, our fear comes from um, uh, the increasing oppression um, that the Chinese government uh, has been taking since uh, a number of years, in fact. Um, I think this is the major reason for the youngsters to to uh, take themselves to streets and to use different ways to express their anger. Mm -hmm. 
So when criticizing the actions of the Chinese government in Hong Kong, we often invoke principles such as the independence of the judiciary and of higher education, freedom of thought, expression, assembly, and protest, and also regional autonomy from the central authority of the state. But we've seen over and over again that political entities in the West, such as the US or EU, are quick to support these principles when they can score political points against China, but often quite reluctant to apply them at home, for instance, when it comes to detentions in Guantanamo Bay or the Catalan independence movement. Now, as Hong Kong intellectuals and activists seem to be squeezed between Chinese and Hong Kong authorities, how do you find allies for your struggles and how do you deal with international entities that want to use your message for their own ends? Um, I think it's very complicated, as you say, um, to deal with the international support for Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. I have two um, short answers to that question. The first thing that comes to my mind is that um, quite a long time ago, in 1971, the, um, the uh, People's Republic of China joined the United States. And immediately after chi China's integration in the United States, uh, China voiced out a very strong comment on Hong Kong and Macau. Uh, the Chinese officials uh, expressed their view that Hong Kong and Macau in 1971, Hong Kong and Macau should not be regarded as colonies. The reason behind is that if Hong Kong and Macau were being regarded as colonies, quite a number of Western powers, different members of the United Nations would support the self-determination and even independence of Hong Kong and Macau. So uh, as early as in 1971, People's Republic of China expressed their view to include Hong Kong and Macau into her sovereignty. And at that point in 1971, almost no Western countries said anything about <laughs> Hong Kong and Macau. So this is uh, my uh, first response to the question. And um, you can see it's um, um, at that moment, uh, the Western countries were quite concerned about uh, the independence of um, quite a number of African countries. So they had no interest intervening in uh, uh, the affairs in Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, my second response to that question comes from what is happening now in Hong Kong. Since the anti-extradition movement in 2019, um, we have step-by-step step developed some international negotiation work. Uh, that's what we call uh, some people are fighting on the international front. That means quite a lot of um, politicians youngsters, university students, and scholars, they have been trying to uh, contact members of parliaments in Australia, in the UK, in the US, in France, in many different countries uh, to clarify what is going on in Hong Kong. And that is uh, the increasing oppression uh, of um, the civil society in Hong Kong.
and uh, they want the Western countries to know what is happening here, and they urge them to take action. As you might know, uh, the Hong Kong Human Rights Act was passed uh, last year uh, in the United States. So uh, the U.S. could use that law to um, ask uh, some scholars to report uh, the condition of human rights in Hong Kong to the Congress. And the U.S. can also uh, um, uh, carry out sanctions on certain uh, officials in Hong Kong as well as uh, in uh, the Chinese Communist Party. So that's one of the results that we have been struggling to achieve. And also in some European countries, uh, some of my colleagues, university uh, scholars, students, and younger politicians, they try to uh, persuade European countries to uh, enact uh, Maniski law. That means to uh, uh, carry out sanctions on those government officials in Hong Kong or in China who violate human rights, who um, uh, persecute unjustly uh, the protesters here in Hong Kong. At this point, you can see um, that I would say there is growing solidarity between Hong Kong and some Western countries. And of course, I'm not saying that we should put all our confidence in the US President Trump. As we know, it's just naive, rely on any one country to gain uh, its support for Hong Kong. But we should try every means to let the international society know what is really happening here in Hong Kong. For sure, thank you. And uh, when talking about national education systems around the world, we also acknowledge that none of them really aims at producing autonomous beings capable of critical thought. To some extent, all states design their education systems with the goal of producing politically and economically compliant members of society. So it is crucial for us to create and share alternative venues and resources for critical thinking. I know that you were involved in the establishment of such an alternative venue in Hong Kong. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about this experience and why you found it necessary to organize like this outside the official framework of higher education. Um, that's a very good point to, to raise. Uh, I am part of the education system here. I have been teaching at university since uh, 2009. Um, so I am fully aware of the limitations of the, of the university system here in Hong Kong and I suspect everywhere in the world. My colleagues and I, and also my uh, uh, comrades in uh, uh, various uh, uh, associations in the civil society, we uh, launched an education uh, institute, let's say, and we call it Intercommon Institute. Intercommon Institute means that we want to make knowledge shareable uh, with different walks of our society. Mm -hmm. So we want to make knowledge something common and accessible uh, by uh, people coming from different professions. Mm -hmm. The unemployed people coming from the grassroots, professionals, etc. So in 
the Intercommon Institute, we offer classes uh, at very low tuition fees about philosophy, literature, sociology, uh, some practical knowledge about independent journalism, independent agriculture, and many other different areas, psychology, mm-hmm. uh, etc. And um, I myself also participated in another association, uh, independent, completely independent of uh, university. That is uh, what we call co- uh, mobile co-learning. Mobile co-learning. So mobile co-learning means that we want to make our classrooms mobile. We want to make everywhere uh, to become classrooms. And co-learning refers to a kind of attitude that we we regard teachers as well as students as colleagues. We want to help each other to learn something that we don't. For example, in mobile Mm co-learning, we offer theme appreciation groups we we, approach, uh, we 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 show uh, different themes and then we discuss about them. Uh, and we have also courses about making beer. We make beer by ourselves, and then uh, after two or three weeks, we drink them together. Then we talk. We know each other. We know new friends, and we discuss current affairs through um, the activities of making beer. So um, mobile co-learning. Um, is a, an association that aims at broader audience with uh, uh, more varieties of activities. Uh, not, uh, they not only focus on some traditional subjects, philosophy, literature, they also want to include different areas of know-how, different areas of knowledge from uh, different corners of our society. Nice. So, Jackie, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and experiences with us, and we wish you the greatest success with your scholarly work and activism. You're welcome, and I'm very glad to uh, make people understand better Hong Kong. Thank you. No, thank you. Your comments were not just informative about the history of political dissent in Hong Kong. At the same time, you help us think through the broader questions surrounding the topic of political dissent in general. And these questions apply regardless of where in the world our activism is taking place. That brings us to the end of another Repeat Voices. Our live events, courses and workshops will start up again in fall 2020 and we cannot wait to get together with all of you in person again. In the meantime, thank you all for tuning in and we hope to challenge you with another Repeat Podcast very soon.